You know, I'm sure if the internet had been around, people would be like, I grew up reading Raven Chandler and Robert Altman ruined my childhood. <laughs> Should rename him Ruin Altman. Ruin <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. On today's episode, we're kicking off our month of neo-noir films with Robert Altman's adaptation of Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. But before we dive into The Long Goodbye, I'd like to give a little recap uh, and talk about what we discussed back in November with the traditional noir um genre and also I'm sorry I, I don't remember discussing this in in november i think we talked about this back in noir vember yeah noir vember okay in noir vember when we discussed film noir but yeah i want to talk about that but also what made neo noir so different from traditional noir so so thomas can you tell everyone kind of what we talked about back in noir vember about the stories and tropes of film noir. Yeah, we talked, uh, you know, about the stories and tropes usually based around some sort of crime, some sort of transgression. These were uh, movies about kind of the dark underbelly of, of wherever they were set, whether it was L.A. or, or Florida. Um, yeah. But we also talked a lot about the style. This was a this is a genre that's influenced as much by style as it is by stories and tropes. And, and that was the German Expressionism. Uh, the style that was brought over from Germany pre-World War II and really took off in America during and post-World War II that involved a lot of uh, dark shadows, high contrast, um, you know, the contrast between light and dark, and um, was brought about by a lot of German directors and cinematographers who were working within the Hollywood system. So, yeah, it's a, it's a genre that's equally tied to these stories of of criminals, of detectives, of, you know people who are drawn into just just one crime as uh it's something like the postman always rings twice and um and some of the the films that we talked about during our um fritz lang episode a lot of his are kind of like a person who is, is pulled into crime who might be innocent or might just have committed just one you know incy binky murder and, and is paying the price <laughs> for it uh yeah but but they're all as equally influenced by that style um yeah as they are by the stories that they're telling yeah and and when going into neo-noir, it's it's interesting how some of those, it, it, the style of it kind of changed. Like, I think mm -hmm. there's some, I don't, I don't really that not much in, in Long Goodbye, but um, there is German expressionism elements that kind of would carry over sometimes. But the big thing, I think, with neo-noir, the, I think the prime examples, and I think with Long Goodbye, we'll talk about this, is just how it can take a traditional noir story and put a modern context around it. Mm -hmm. And I think with neo-noir now, because I think, I think neo-noir, you can lump a lot of it. I mean, I wonder, do people lump more in with the film noir genre or the neo-noir genre? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, feel yeah like well, I think the, yeah. I think the lines are a little bit more blurred with neo-noir because stylistically, a lot of these films do play with, you know, whereas German expressionism is pretty easy to point out a lot of the, these yeah. neo-noirs we're going to be looking at play with that. And even if they're not, if they're kind of doing the opposite of German expressionism in some of these, yeah. um, which we're, we can talk about today as well, as far as like how things are lit or what, what time of day they're set. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it, it's, it's, there's a lot more room to play within neo-noir. It's kind of like we talked about with uh, 
with horror comedy you know it, it's mm-hmm. something that's coming off of a of a very strong genre that's very well defined and has a long history and so then you've got something that's coming along afterwards that's kind of playing with all of those tropes and those styles and so yeah there's a lot of room for interpretation here. yeah and i think i think with uh, the key to neo-noir that some people try to like they try to just take what noir did and copy it like verbatim essentially in terms of style in terms of tropes in terms of story but with neo-noir i think it's very key you have to bring something new to it mm-hmm. um to make it unique and to make it i mean neo to make it new mm-hmm. um and i think altman's the long goodbye does that tremendously and we'll talk more about that but yeah it's it's like i i see a lot of kind of modern day neo-noir films that get lumped into it and they don't really feel uh i think again as i said they just get lumped in together like i I think you have to say in bruges which we talked about last month i think we you we mentioned how that is essentially a neo-noir and i think what makes that neo-noir is how it plays with kind of the the archetype of the hitman and bringing kind of a, a little bit of a, like a, a hitman with a conscience type thing. Mm-hmm. And McDonough brings you a, a new perspective that we haven't really seen as much before. Yeah. And, and kind of the underbelly of a place that you wouldn't think of. Like we talked a lot with the Florida noir subgenre yeah. that you take these places that you think of as very pleasant and maybe even innocent at that point, And you show the dark side of it. Yeah. And that's a good point too, with neo-noir. Cause I mean, in noir, we talked about how cities usually had an effect on the stories, if it's like L.A. or New York or wherever. Um, but with neo-noir, it's like it's taking that, the city aspect, even more so. And it's kind of you're seeing this, like, urban decay is really taking over. And mm-hmm. these kind of urban cities are, are like, becoming dirtier, becoming a little bit, seem more corrupt. Um, like, you think of, like, say, like, compare even just, like, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood with how Tarantino makes the sixties of LA looks compared to say the forties of LA where like everything's starting to become a little bit more rundown, a little bit more adult and mature um, compared to the early fifties and forties of, of America. And I think what's so interesting about say with long goodbye is that Altman and, and writer Lee Brackett, they t- and Elliot Gould who plays uh, Philip Marlowe, they take, a 1950s character and literally don't change much about him and put him in a 1970s atmosphere. Mm. That's what's kind of so unique. Uh, and really, I don't know if it has really been done that much before. I mean, it hadn't really done before and has been an after and how they do it. And also we too, we talked about how with noir, there's not really that many detectives in the genre. It's kind of very few and neo noir became more about detectives than noir ever was. Yeah. Because I think they just take the little bits of noir and the narration and the the hard boil like gumshoe type detective, and they think, oh, that's what all our movies should be about. And I think with Altman and Brackett and this film, they try to subvert that and give you like give you a whole new perspective. So yeah, as we've said, we're talking about 1973's The Long Goodbye Today, and it is directed by famed director robert altman we've never really covered an altman movie on this show it is an adaptation of famed author raymond chandler's 1953 novel of the same name and we talked about raymond chandler early in noir vember when we discussed murder my sweet starring dick powell the the film was written by female screenwriter and novelist lee brackett who worked extensively with director howard hawks on such films as rio bravo 
Rio Lobo, El Dorado, and in another Chandler adaptation, The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. She was a co-writer on the original Bogart version. And the film stars Elliot Gould in a fresh version of Marlowe um, and, and very... Um, the antithesis of kind of kind of the other of the Bogart version and Dick Powell version of Marlowe, mm-hmm. probably more probably more in line with Powell than than Bogart. Um, but yeah. So what were your I mean, and also you can find this movie I think on we watched it on Hoopla, which if you have if you have a, a library card, I think your a lot of library services cover this, and I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime, and that might be all that might be the, uh, all the places where it's at right now. Um, so, what were your initial thoughts from me watching this movie? Yeah, I hadn't seen this one since I, I kind of went through my my Altman phase in college, um, and it uh, it really. I, I I came in not really remembering what to expect of it. I remember yeah. that I liked this one, but it really might be one of my favorite of, of Altman's movies. It's such, he was such an interesting director who liked to, I think a lot of times when people think Altman, they think these big kind of uh, ensemble awesome. comedies yeah. that kind of just flow and don't really have a plot like MASH or Nashville. And he he was someone who was really interested in experimenting with a lot of genres like i told you the first yeah. the first altman movie i saw outside of mash was images which is a psychological horror movie and i was like this is very different from mash and and um and that's when i started diving into a lot of its stuff so he's someone who really enjoyed playing with genre and and so this one's i think really fun to get his take on the noir and um Elliot gould's great i i have to remind yeah. myself sometimes because i I worked with Elliot Gould on a multicam sitcom. Uh, I see Elliot Gould a lot on Friends uh, when we just have it on in the house. And and sometimes I forget that Elliot Gould is like one of the greats of 1970s independent cinema. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, even even like, I mean, at the turn of it with with uh, like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice in like 69, mm-hmm. the kind of the beginning of it. But then, yeah, going into the 70s and just kind of all the great films that he was a part of. I love I went I went one time um to see MASH screened in Burbank and um Elliot Gould was there and they did a panel afterwards and and they were talking they asked him specifically a lot of the other cast was there but they asked him specifically about his relationship with Altman because they had done several movies together. Yeah. And he said he had a he he had a recurring nightmare uh as he was getting older in life and and was still acting. He had a recurring nightmare where he he was on set and he couldn't remember any of his lines and the director was a lot younger than him and everyone around him was a lot younger than him and they everyone was like yelling at him and then he said always in his dream he would see this trailer would appear in the distance and the door would open up and it would be robert altman and he would say don't you dare yell at elliot gould whatever he does whatever he says whatever his <laughs> instinct is is the right one and <laughs> He said that's that's the he, he, Altman always comes to save him in his nightmares, which I just thought was funny for their um, relationship, but also for Altman's style, which is just kind of very yeah. naturalistic. And the two of them work together so well. Yeah, I mean, like what he's famous for is kind of the 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 overlapping dialogue, mm-hmm. and I think he I mean he kind of broke new new ground in terms of how to record dialogue because we don't in real life we don't just say say our words and then stop and wait for the other person to respond we're talking over each other mm. and he wanted to replicate that in film and so that's why and it happens in this movie but it happens more it's more apparent in 
the bigger ensemble films where like everyone like I think you know it's not it's it's Popeye that I'm thinking of of like them at a dinner table and everyone on the dinner table is just talking and you're hearing like snippets of every conversation and he's controlling the audio of like what you're going to hear at this time Mm -hmm. and and this one I think he does it more like you see it it's interesting it's you you hear it more early on in terms of the way he uses sound of all those overlapping dialogue but then it gets clearer as the movie goes on or at least towards the end when the when the story becomes clearer mm-hmm. um of what's happening and also i'm gonna say it right now we're gonna spoil some of the movie um we talk about it today because there's a the, the ending i really want to discuss because it's very important to this to this uh, to why altman did this movie um yeah i love the whole vibe of it i yeah. love the it's gorgeous too visually this yeah yeah Vilma Shigman who did deer hunter and close encounters the third kind he also shot images in mccabe and mrs miller by altman just a beautiful like like it's a sunshine noir mm-hmm. like it's not like like sometimes noir can just be bright and the and the, the daytime stuff here is just like hot like just incredibly bright and sunshine all over of like sunny la yeah well that's what you know a lot of times the the kind of transgressive or the contrasting ideas of these movies is we've talked about la is is tinsel town it's pictured as this like glamorous place and a lot of these movies in the 50s were just dropped us into a dirty la alley and that's all we saw for the Mm -hmm. movie and and the contrast was there because it was playing off of what we know of la in our minds and this movie actually does that contrast visually it's it's got there's there's the one shot and i think it's used for a lot of the like cover art it's a very famous shot but when um they the the um couple is kind of sent uh philip marlowe out onto the beach and then they're calling Mm -hmm. him back to the house and he's walking up to this malibu house in his full black business suit and it's just such a stark contrast he's out on this malibu beach in his full business suit and that that's what this movie is is much more visual and contrasting like this this guy is a detective he's tied up in all kinds of crime and and la organized crime and all this stuff but you get these moments of contrast like him on the beach or him interacting with his hippie yoga neighbors and that that's this contrast that's constantly being thrown at us is like this is what la is like now and this guy is kind of stuck in in that 1950s grungy time yeah, uh, Altman and, and Gould called Marlowe uh, Rip Van Marlowe on mm-hmm. set because it feels as if he is a he is it's a 1950s character who goes to sleep in the 1950s and wakes up in 1973. Yeah, like everyone keeps telling him to take his necktie off, and he's like, "No, I'm not taking yeah. my necktie." <laughs> yeah, and that's why I think it's very unique is that it's this. It's kind of it's a movie. I think I think Gould said that he showed this to Donald Sutherland, and the ending kind of made you think. Oh, it's a movie about morality and how uh, Marlowe is this man who has the the nineteen fifties like moral code of of like he's he's like always tries to be right and tries to be a good person, but everything around him is showing that everyone's corrupt and. You would you would see that in the earlier like Chandler novels taking place in the fifties, but it's even more apparent with the visual change of him literally looking like a nineteen fifties character driving a nineteen forty eight Lincoln Continental, and is just like in this nineteen seventies to the nineteen seventy three world of Vietnam and this kind of hip post hippie era of uh, post hippie era love and peace generation, and it's just a very 
unique take. And it really, the ending does kind of showcase the the change of how this world changes Marlowe. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that as we get into it. So, brief history of how it got made. Uh, as I said, Raymond Chandler's novel was released in 1953, and it was the sixth appearance of Chandler's famous private detective, Philip Marlowe. Chandler considered it to be his best book, even though some considered it inferior to other film, other movies, other, seemed to feel it was inferior to other novels like Feral My Lovely and The Big Sleep. The Long Goodbye was never adapted for the big screen during his lifetime. It was, however, adapted as a television episode, which we talked about back in November on the Murder My Sweet episode. It was an early episode of the anthology television show Climax, where Dick Powell actually starred as Philip Marlowe. This TV show keeps popping up in our podcast. We talked about Murder My Sweet. We talked about it in James Bond when they did Casino mm-hmm. Royale as, yeah. as an episode. So it's, I want to go go watch this, some of the show because uh, like apparently it's it's these early early adaptations of like famed literary stories. Um, so Elliot Kastner, who serves as executive producer on the final film, obtained the rights to Long Goodbye in 1965 in hopes of turning it into film into the into a film. The film rights then went to a producer by the name of Gabriel Kotska, who wanted to wanted to serve as a sequel to the 1969 film Marlowe, which was an adaptation of Chandler's Little Sister and starred James Gardner. Kastner and fellow producer Jerry Bick bought back the rights of The Long Goodbye in a deal with United Artists. Even after Raymond Chandler's death, apparently his books were still selling very well. And there was a want for another film. Hmm. So Kastner brought on his former client when he was the agent, Lee Brackett, to write a film version of The Long Goodbye. And Lee, she was brought on because, as I said earlier, she wrote the initial, uh, or the she was a co-writer on the Big Sleep adaptation in 1946, the Bogart and Lauren Bacall. So during this time, multiple directors were offered or attached to this project. It was initially initially director Brian G. Hutton was attached when the film was to take place in the 1950s. That was the initial draft. Of the script was supposed to take place in 1953 and Brackett worked with him on the, on an early version of the script. Hutton would, I think had directed such films as uh, where Eagles dare and Kelly's heroes. So after Hutton left, the producers offered the film to Howard Hawks and Peter Bogdanovich. Allegedly, one of the reasons why Bogdanovich didn't take the job was because uh, he wanted someone else to star in the lead role besides Elliot Gould, because Elliot Gould was kind of already attached at this point, Um, because United Artists really wanted him to play the role, and Bogdanovich allegedly recommended Robert Altman for the film. And when Robert Altman was asked to do the film, he said he initially was not interested in tackling a, a, a 19, like 1950s detective gumshoe story. He felt they were played out and he couldn't add his voice to the genre, but he said it was Lee Brackett's script that made him reconsider. Uh, the ending of the script made him realize this was a Marlowe that no one had ever portrayed, and he said he would only do it if it was put in his contract, the ending would not be changed. And they agreed. Wow. As we talked about, Gould and Altman had previously worked together on MASH. Um, Gould was actually going through a bit of a rough patch as he had not worked in two years. He had developed a little bit of a bad reputation around this time because of a failed production of a film called A Glimpse of Tiger. He was starring in it, I believe was producing. 
Um, the rumors were Gould was addicted to drugs, which Gould has constantly denied. Um, and the production was shut down after four days because of all these issues that were reportedly having, happening on set. And since he was on Thin Ice, United Artists made him go through a psychological examination to test his mental stability before he could be cast in The Long Goodbye. Wow. So he did a lot for that. And so in January 1972, it was officially announced that Gould and Altman were on board to make the movie. So that's how this adaptation came to be. So Thomas, give me give me one of your favorite scenes. You know, this is this is a tough one to Altman's tough to do because his movies flow so much. Like yeah. um like you know one of my one of my favorite things toward the beginning as far as like characterizing this version of Marlowe is this this the whole sequence of him feeding his cat. Um which yes. is when we're kind of introduced Great to scene. him. Great scene. He, he wakes up, the cat wakes him up, he goes in the kitchen and he makes this whole dish for his cat out of human food because he's out of cat food. The cat doesn't mm-hmm. want it, so then he decides he's going to go to the grocery store. And like it's it's like three a.m. Right? He says it's something yeah. crazy. Yeah. And and then he talks. We're introduced to his neighbors. They ask him for some brownie mix. He goes to the store. They're out of the kind of cat food that he knows his cat wants. He talks to that guy who says, "I don't have a cat. I've got a girlfriend." Uh, <laughs> who we then see later, which is you know why this whole thing kind it's, of flows. Like that joke yeah. is, isn't isn't brought back until later when he's arrested. Um, yeah. So then he buys this other version of cat food and he comes home and takes the cat food that he's bought and puts it in the can of the old cat food that he knows his cat likes <laughs> and puts it out. And then his cat still refused to, to eat it. Um, you know, it's and it, and it all flows. It feels like one big scene, yeah. but that's like five scenes we've just talked about. Yeah. Um, and and it, it gives it's such a good influence. He's like, it's such a good in- introduction to him because he's obviously some someone who cares. He cares about his cat enough to like, yeah try and get him to eat and, and go out and get him some food in the middle of the night. And then he, he goes and buys the brownie mix for the girls next door and just gives it to him. And they try and pay him. And he says, no, don't worry about it. Um, yeah. So it's, he's definitely like a, a much more good hearted Marlowe than I think we've seen before, but he's still constantly quipping, which is what yeah. we always know about Marlowe. He's always got like a smart comeback. And, and, and this one is, is, and, and I, I really like that. It's not so much like the, the monologue, as you get in some of these earlier noir movies is he's just kind of monologuing to himself and we're hearing it, um, you know, loud and clear and, and that kind of like dreamy Altman mix where we can hear everybody at the, at the same volume. Um, yeah. And, and and we're just kind of going along with him as he goes grocery shopping and tries to get his cat to eat. Yeah. It's a great scene of just like, of introducing a character and making him relatable. Mm -hmm. Like it's not about solving a crime this dude's goal for like 10 minutes is trying to feed the one thing that like he has in his life. And that's his cat. And I love like where he like, again, the cat part where like he comes back with the food and he shuts the kitchen door. So the cat doesn't see yeah. him putting the, putting the food in the old container. But then he's like, Oh no, did I, did I lock you out of the kitchen? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Come on. Just time to eat. I mean, and it's, it's relatable because I mean, I, I, we, I'm back home right now. And like with our cat, she, she has, she's finicky about how, how she eats. So I'm just like, and when I'm watching this movie, I was like, oh, that's our, that's our cat. That's like, she's finicky about how, like what food she wants at a specific time. And Altman said that he had, it was, it, he had heard, one of his friends told him the story about how his, his cat was picky about what they ate. And Altman wanted to show that because he thought it was a good scene to show, like, friendship. Oh, 
show the cat's hungry. Right, right. Oh, did I lock you out of the kitchen? I'll fix your dinner just as soon as I get me a smoke. Right, right, here you are. Curry's brand, finest I could find. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, open this thing up right away. Don't want you not to have your favorite kind of cat food. Okay, okay. Look at this. It's very dreamlike because it just feels like both or both or both Marlowe and the camera are just floating through this 1970s LA. Mm. And, and I think they wanted to have this like voyeuristic approach of how you like are watching everything. Um, but yeah, I love, I'll say I love where he lives. Like just that apartment, which I think is, I think still in LA, um, like the apartment like building that he kind of lives in. Um, no, yeah, I love that scene. I wrote that down. Um, I mean, anything with him and Sterling Hayden, <laughs> I like. Sterling Hayden is, is something else in this movie, man. He's, it's, I mean, it's basically Ernest Hemingway. I just, yeah, it is. It is. I just assume yeah. that's what they're going for. I think, I think they talked about, um, I think they talked about John Houston at one point for the role. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I and, see and, yeah, there's a few more things, but yeah, they talk. He's like, I, "Who do I get for this Hemingway type character?" And it's like, "Let's just get Sterling Hayden." A big old beard. It looks great. Beard looks great. Yeah, on. oh, it, it does. Um, but yeah, I love their stuff. I love the whole like, oh gosh, the, oh gosh, my guy who's in the Burbs and Blues Brothers, who's his like psychiatric, like doctor, a psychiatrist, when he's like, "Give me the check, Roger." Give me the ch- when they're at the party. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Yeah. And like he's confronting him at the party about yeah Henry his, Gibson. Uh, is Henry Gibson? Thank you. Yeah, he was in. Uh, he was also in, in Wedding Crashers. He was. He's the pre. He's the pre- is he a, he's the priest. Is yeah. It? yeah. Or like a, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which who got invited? Uh, I don't know why he gets invited to the after party on Martha's Vineyard, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's uh he's like give me the check, Roger. Give mm-hmm. me the check. Let's have the, and, it's, and it's in front of this public and like this public scene of like. Oh, uh, this guy's been like in rehab a bunch of times, um, and and yeah, the the kind of the scenes that they have that that Gould and him have together, I think are great. It's because I think they, uh, they improvise a lot of their lines together, which is very common on the lot of Altman sets. I feel is this kind of constant collaboration with cast and crew. Um, I also, I mean, it's it's the scene. I mean, the kind of whole sequence of when. Hayden commits suicide as, or when yeah. Roger commits suicide in the, in the ocean, uh, just walks into the ocean, almost like it's, uh, an early star is born movie, which will happen in a lot of them. Spoiler for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Gould and Gould comes out just like in this high pitched voice, like trying to find out why did he just do this mm. and like confronts the wife about like, did he have an affair? Um, uh, uh, with with uh with this other woman, I just realized that we never really gave you the 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 story, the plot <laughs> of the long goodbye. Um, so the long goodbye is about uh Philip Marlowe who randomly one night his one of his one of his friends, I think his best friend, 
shows up and says like he's having to go away because some stuff's happened. So Marlo takes him down to the border of Mexico and drops him off. Well, the next day he finds out that uh, his friend, Terry Lennox, that Terry Lennox's wife has been killed and they believe it's Terry. And then Terry appears to have committed suicide down in Mexico. And so Marlo is trying to find out what happened to his friend, trying to prove that he didn't kill his wife uh, and that someone murdered him down in Mexico. Sorry, I forgot. Altman <laughs> movies, again, it's like, again, you, you talked about this with Altman earlier, but Altman's very much about story and doesn't really care that much about plot, mm-hmm. which is a difference. And I think we've talked about on the show, but like plot is kind of the the nuts and bolt of this thing happens, so this can happen, blah, blah. It's what it's what's going on. It's what's happening. When the story is is what the what the plot is about. Like what it's so it's that morality that we're talking about with this character of being tested with the codes of, of his 1950 code to what's happening in the 1970s. So, yeah, it's like and at that moment when he's kind of questioning everyone, that's when you're really seeing Marlo kind of break mm-hmm. in that moment when he's like questioning um, uh, Rogers, Rogers wife uh, about it, about like what did Roger way do? And then, and then questions the cops and he finds out the cops knew all along yeah, that Roger yeah. Wade. And, and yeah, it's, it's and, really, and, he's been playing it cool the whole movie and it really comes to yeah. a head there. He goes up to the cops and he's like, this happened. Roger yeah. Wade is a suspect. I was arrested because Terry was a suspect and this clears mm-hmm. Terry. And I want all of this over with and, and Terry's name to be cleared. And they're like, Oh no, we knew that. Yeah. And we still think Terry's Terry's our suspect. I guess. Well, I guess I want to get to the ending here with this because the ending builds to all like, like at that moment when when he confronts everyone, I feel like that's when I said the movie begins to turn a little bit, mm. and this kind of quippy Marlowe is now like is entrenched in kind of these corrupt and 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 shady and layered dealings. Because then you also have like this mob stuff or this kind of gangster stuff that's happening, where like Terry owed these guys money is what it is. I think was, I don't know how much that works, uh, but Mark Rydell plays uh, the gangster. That's a scene, uh, the Coke bottle scene, mm-hmm. when he hits. Uh, he basically he hits his girlfriend with like with the class Coke bottle, and basically says to Marlo, "If I'll do that, to someone I love, you can only picture what I'll do to you." And it's a very violent scene. Is that a, is that an homage to uh, the Big Heat? I wondered. I literally thought the same thing when it happened. Of like, is it like kind of the coffee pot being thrown? Because mm-hmm. uh, it feels like it. Yeah. But Altman, Altman, like he, which what, which does not happen. The big heat, but Altman cuts to the reaction of like the gangsters' henchmen, mm-hmm. and you see how shocked they are about what just happened. Like they're even shocked that he would do this. Yeah. And it's very, it's very violent for like what you're expecting in this like kind of comical dude going through LA and this, it's, it's a very jarring and and it, it, it shows you what could happen in this film. Look, is that a face and a face for a magazine cover profile? And I love you. I do. I sleep with a lot of girls, but I make love to you, right? The single most important person in my life, next to my family. Hey, Pepe? That's right, Marty. 
violent scene is the ending where Marlo has shown up in Mexico and now realizes that Terry is not dead and Terry has faked this entire thing. Mm. Um, and I just love, I say, I love that scene because that's when Marlo's code is coming to play. And he spent this entire movie trying to prove that his friend is innocent and he's trying to like, even though he's dead, he wants to prove that like, he didn't do this thing to this. He didn't kill his wife. Mm -hmm. And then you find out everything that I've been believing is a lie. He did kill his wife. And now he's hiding out in Mexico and Roger Wade's wife is his mistress. And they're going off together. And he just like open. He just pulls out his gun, says something about his cat and shoots his best friend. Yeah. Like it's such a, again, spoiler alert for those that haven't seen long goodbye. Uh, go watch it. But yeah, it's it's a, such a jarring and kind of violent moment that is so different from Marlowe. But it's that he is. It's almost it's almost like he has succumbed to this this period. This this what the world has become. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 really shocking, and especially it, it's a it's a major departure from the book, um, mm -hmm. in which Terry has kind of has gone into hiding and is and. Marlowe discovers Terry has had plastic surgery to change his face and all this stuff, but it's because he was set up by Mrs. Wade. And, mm. uh, and so this one, you know, if, if you were a fan of the book and you're watching this one and he goes to Mexico and finds Terry, you're like, all right, now is when Terry tells him that he was set up. And mm. then, uh, no, he's just like, yeah, I killed my wife. I did it. Um, I just hit her a little bit and she died. And Marlo's like, I saw the pictures you like bashed her head in. And then he just yeah. shoots him. Pulls out a gun, shoots him. I hate to Doesn't he say, like, I lost my cat because of this or something yeah, like that? Yeah. So, yeah. And just shoots him. And then again, it's the third man scene where he's leaving the house. He's leaving Terry at the house and he's walking down the street. And Eileen Wade is, is driving up. And it's that third man thing where he just keeps walking. Mm -hmm. She stops and thinks he's going to say something to her. And he just lights up a cigarette and just keeps walking by her. Mm -hmm. And then her Ray for Hollywood starts playing classic it's just it's just it's brilliant i guess if anybody's gonna track me down it would be you want a drink or something no i don't want no drink you get a kick out of that madison i sent you yeah i got a big kick out of it so you murdered your wife huh terry well i killed her but you can't call it murder wade told her about eileen and me she started screaming she was gonna tell the cops she knew i was carrying money for augustine she's gonna turn me in I hit her. I didn't try to kill her. I hit her. I didn't mean it. I saw the photographs, boy. You bashed her face in. She didn't give me any choice. You didn't have much choice, huh? So you used me. The hell, that's what friends are for. I was in a jam. Come on, have a drink. 
I had a dead wife. $350,000 that doesn't belong to me. I had to get out. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. Goddamn simple. Cops had me legally dead. Augustine's got his money. He's not looking for me anymore. I got a girl that loves me. She's got more money than Sylvia and Augustine put together. What the hell? Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares but me. Well, that's you, Marlo. You'll never learn. You're a born loser. Yeah, I even lost my cat. Yeah, Altman said, Chandler fans are going to hate my guts. <laughs> I don't give a damn. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure they did. You know, I'm sure if the internet had been around, people would be like, I grew up oh, reading Raven Chandler and Robert Altman ruined my childhood. <laughs> Should rename him Ruin Altman. Um, Ruin. <laughs> but it's one of those things that's aged so well. It's one of one of the best yeah. Marlowe adaptations out there. Do you have any more scenes? Uh, the only other one that, that really sticks out to me as a distinctive scene is is his first interrogation um, that's shot yeah. like almost entirely through the the um, one way mirror. Yeah um yeah and you're you get kind of the combo of the the people observing him and and him in the room and him just you know stonewalling with with jokes the entire time as these guys are trying to interrogate him yeah how do you feel about the ink stuff that he does like it's not yeah i mean the al jolson stuff is is not al aged, is not al aged very well. yeah, it is yeah. it is i mean it's fun when it starts and he's he's like talking like he's a football player that's that's fun but uh yeah that yeah turns i into mean the yeah, it makes it. I mean, it makes sense at the time and place and kind of the references, but uh, I guess in the in the nowadays culture, it would be uh, frowned upon. But there's a lot of stuff in the '70s that would be frowned upon if you watched it today. Um, but that that is one that people I think I don't know how people react to it. Yeah, that and, and I think the the final scene with with Mark Rydell's uh, gang, where they're all like getting naked and. And yeah. he's like, yeah, we're all going to get naked here and we're going to apologize to my girlfriend. And and Marlo's just like, what is going on? This is insane. <laughs> and all the, all the guys are like, no, no, not me. Not, I've got too many scars. I'm not doing it. He's yeah, like, I'm not doing it. Harry, Harry, you get naked. Harry, take your clothes off. Take your clothes off. Let's, let's, get, let's get truthful in here. Let's get honest in here. Let's get all the honesty out. Yeah, it's a weird... Like Mark, like said, Mark Rydell stuff is kind of... I'm not saying it doesn't work, but it just... it. it it feels so separate kind of from everything else that's mm. happening. But that's um, also kind of, I mean, that's kind of Chandler, isn't it? He's always got, yeah. like, there's always this B plot Multi line that yeah. ends up somehow tied back into it. Um, yes. And and there's just, there's little touches throughout this movie that I, I feel like I could speak to even more than scenes. Like, I, I love the character yeah. of Harry, this, um, this kind of low-level gangster who's been assigned to tail um, yeah. Marlo. Yeah. Marlo's got that scene where he comes out and he's like, Harry's like, I've been watching those those girls up there. I think I think they might be lesbians. He's like, Harry, <laughs> here's here's the address I'm going to. If you lose me in traffic, you can find me here. Harry's like, wow, that's so nice of you. Um, and then I and then I love the uh, the security guard at the um, at the Malibu. Oh yeah, doing all his Jimmy Stewart. And, yeah, doing and, all uh, the impressions. impressions. Yeah, yeah. He comes out and does the Walter <laughs> Brennan for for Harry, and Harry's like, Walter, who? Yeah, big. The next guy, big fan of Walter Brennan. <laughs> big fan. Duty, duty, duty. I'm always on duty. Oh, you're going to see the weight. I recognize the car. Hiya, Carrie. Hi. Listen, there's this uh, spiffy kid who's coming up behind me. I think he's okay. He's a very big fan of Walter Brennan's. Walter Brennan? Okay, thanks. Walter Brennan? Better learn how to limp a little bit here. Very strange. 
can I do for you? I'm following that car. No cars out there. That big sagebrush and a few covered wagons. You friend of my boy, Billy? What? I left Billy out there on the, on the flat lands to die. I'm going to get him. How was that? How was what? My imitation of Walter Brennan. Walter Brennan? Yeah, he said... Oh, never mind. Go ahead. Altman puts together a very, for lack of a better word, an odd cast in this movie. Mm -hmm. It's a very odd... Because a lot of these people didn't act that like you don't really see them popping up in a lot of, like movies of the era like you get gold and 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 people like that but then you get like uh jim bouton who was a professional <laughs> baseball who was a professional baseball player yeah he was a he was a, a brave after he was his, his second resurgence after he retired and then came back that was after this movie he, he played for the Atlanta braves after he made this movie Five years after this film in 78. Yep. But like, and then Nina Van uh, Paladin, who was like a, uh, I think, well, she was Danish, but she was like seeing someone at the time. Oh, yeah. She was like romantically linked to Clifford Irving, who did that Howard Hughes, uh, like, uh, hope, like biography, that fake biography on Howard Hughes. She was like seeing him at one point around this time. On Onset Life, so Lee Brackett and Robert Altman have said in the past the majority of the scenes between Gould and Serling Hayden were improvised, specifically the drinking scenes. The reason why was because Hayden was constantly drunk and stoned on set. <laughs> of course. You know, mm -hmm. he's a method actor. And he also uh, never hit his marks either. Mm. Which Zygmunt, Vilma Zygmunt said to him like, don't worry about it. Just like do whatever. We'll we'll find you. And Hayden later told Zygmunt that this is the best set he had worked on because I, he said, I realized that half of my performance is being hurt by me trying to find my mark. <laughs> and you just let me go. And yeah, so in terms of the look of it, Zygmunt and Altman, uh, they wanted to have this, even though it's in the 70s, they wanted to have this like 1940s pastel, like Hollywood postcard look to it. So that's why it's always so bright um, and 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 not color, but always like kind of just like bright and kind of almost like washed out colors in certain spots of the movie. Um, and they also, they wanted the, the camera to be constantly moving, as we said earlier. So they put it on a dolly to move back and forth. So like you're, even like the, the just the small room scenes, you're seeing the camera just constantly moving backwards and forwards mm -hmm. um, throughout the film. Altman did not finish reading the long goodbye novel, but instead he read a lot of Chandler's short stories and essays, many of which he passed around to the cast and crew. Yeah. I think that the long goodbye novel was the longest that Chandler had ever written. And that was one of the big things of like trying to adapt. It was just how to cut things, cut the fat out of the movie, out of, out of the story. Mm. Um, yeah. A lot of stuff was improvised on set specifically that you talked about the, uh, the interrogation scene with the cops is just kind of gold, just kind of riffing. And then I think even his, like, I'm okay with that when he keeps talking to himself, like I'm okay with that, or that's fine by me or whatever. I think the initial one was an ad lib and they just kept that in for the rest of the movie is that's kind of the, again, going back to the character of Marlo in this is that the entire movie he's talking about, that's okay with me. I can deal with that. Like he's just like, okay with everything that's happening to him and the ending. What's so, subversive is for the first time it's not okay with him anymore and he becomes kind of this like cold-blooded guy mm -hmm. but yeah so it seems like a pretty pretty laid-back set with altman which is usually what it sounded like in terms of the cast and crew um changes from the novel real quick 
um, that they made for the film. As we said, the book takes place in the 1950s, but the movie takes place in 1973. Um, Marty Augustine, who's played by Mark Rydell, the gangster, mm-hmm. was not present in the novel at all. Um, have you read the novel? Uh, or... I, I have not. I, I read, at some point, I read the Cliff Notes when I took uh, Detective Fiction, because we, we talked okay. about all of Chandler's stuff. So I, I remember the basic plot points, but that was not one that I, I went into directly. <laughs> um yeah and then uh, let's see what else uh roger wade is murdered in the novel mm-hmm. and doesn't commit suicide i think it was that eileen wade his wife kills him mm-hmm. is yeah. what it is but yeah now i think it's just this... it's it's a, it's a much less dramatic form of suicide they just like find him dead uh in the yeah, house yeah, yeah and then like yeah and then so it's it's just kind of this like unclear just like like he's just is it a drunken thing and he just walks out and commits suicide um, and yeah, you said earlier, the biggest change is basically Terry Lennox is not killed by Marlowe at the end of the, in the novel and the novel, he had had plastic surgery, uh, down in Mexico mm-hmm. and he leaves and Marlowe lets him leave. And that's just kind of the end of the book. So aftermath, do you think this movie was well-received? Uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I don't really know how Altman was received at the time. Like I know that obviously mash was a huge hit, but, um, yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, it was it was very mixed. Oh, okay, all right. It was well, very that's, mixed. That's better than being you know hated. Yeah, some say it was not well received. It, Altman attended a Q and A Q&A session after the movie in New York, and he said that the mood was vaguely hostile. Uh, reportedly leaving the director incredibly depressed. Um, it was not received well in its limited release in L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia, and Miami. Uh, many reviewers did not understand it but people like roger ebert and gene siskel and pauline kale all gave the movie positive reviews i think you i think they even they did a re-release of the movie because when it came out it didn't do what the box office let's see what how much did it make (laughs) it made nine hundred fifty nine thousand dollars on a (laughs) 1.7 million dollar budget but yeah it's so they re-released it because studios realize that the, the people were expecting like a straight detective story and that's not what they got instead they they, they kind of tried to market it as a comedy in the re-release and they spent uh forty thousand dollars on a whole new release campaign uh and the poster was drawn by mad magazine artist jack davis so it's like they try to get like so they, they it sounds like the marketing team of United Artists back in the seventies had no clue what to do with this <laughs> kind of, of, of off kiltered movie. Right. Zygmunt was, Vilma Zygmunt was awarded the national society of film critics prize for best cinematographer. Uh, and it wound up on the New York times top 10 best of the year. And Roger Ebert would later, um, rank it in his great movies collection. So, and then also just kind of, a uh, a back or i want to go back on this in terms of aftermath um it was written as we said by lee brackett and i want to state how important lee brackett was to this movie and, and several movies but she's also kind of a a big influence on star wars because after this movie she would later co-write star wars and empire strikes back and kind of help develop the story with george lucas before lawrence kasdan came in mm-hmm. and and did it um but yeah she was she was known as the queen of space operas 
because she wrote all these science fiction novels in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, so after The Long Goodbye, she went on to do Empire Strikes Back for Passing Away, I believe, in 1979. So what worked about this movie? Uh, I mean, I think just the, the visual style. We've, we've brought it up before, but it's it's so unique and and kind of refreshing to get this like sun sunlit noir yeah um we we still this is the 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 beauty of the neo-noir genre but we we, we've got all these beats we know what this is inspired by we know what it's evoking um but then we like i said we get this instead of you know the dubbed monologue we get uh just kind of marlo talking to himself and we get the, the bright sun and we get Malibu and people driving around in convertibles. Um, and so it, it feels like a noir throughout, but it's an entirely different experience in the exact, at the exact same time, which is, is I think, you know, the beauty of, of this sub sub genre that we're talking about this month is, is uh, we all have this understanding of what's being evoked, what's being referenced, but you can put your own spin on it. And I think the spin that Altman lands on, is perfect yeah no no, i agree completely um how do you feel about the score by john williams it's so it's so cool it's such a unique idea it's yeah so it's there's a the theme song the long goodbye and then the all of the music in the film is different versions of that song so someone turns on the radio there's like multiple different recording artists who are singing it uh when they go down to mexico you'll hear like a marching band or mariachi band at one point playing yeah. it um you know if they go in a bar the pianist there is playing it yeah it's it's so cool that it, and it's not you know the it's changed so much the the um the versions are so different that you're not just saying they're going like oh it's that song again you know it's it's not i got yeah. you babe in groundhog day <laughs> um <laughs> it, it's being constantly changed where you just hear it and you're like oh i know that melody from somewhere and it's like oh yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've heard it five times in this movie already yeah. Um, but it, it adds to that, you know, Altman, I, when you read criticism of Altman, I feel like dreamlike is brought up in every, you know, when you talk about Robert Altman, you have to yeah. use the phrase dreamlike and yeah. it, it has a lot to do with his dialogue and the way his scenes just kind of flow. Like we talked about, but, uh, that's definitely that, that just having that, that song keep popping up in different ways and you just keep going, I know that song, uh, yeah. it, it really adds to the, the dreamlike state in this one. Yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's you see like all you hear all these different like in the mariachi band like this Muzak type thing, and it's it's also kind of like written. It was written by Williams and Johnny Mercer, who did all these like kind of like pop songs of the early like kind of forties and fifties in that era, and so it has this like just almost in a way it reminds me a little bit of Phantom of the Paradise we talked about of how Brian De Palma heard the Beatles music of what inspired him for the movie of how like it, he heard this beautiful Beatles music turned like Muzak in the elevator and long goodbye kind of shows just how this like song can be like transformed into something completely different and new sometimes sometimes it's kind of just a just a rip off and trying to make money but essentially how they can morph this pop song into something more there's a long Goodbye, and it happens every day when some passerby 
Passerby invites your eye to come her way. Even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go. You let the moment fly. Too late, you turn your head. You know you said the long goodbye. Did anything not work about this movie? You know, not that I. Not that that really stuck out to me. Um, there's nothing glaring where I was like, oh, I, I, I could have done without that. How do you feel about Mark Rydell scenes? I like, like them. I, I, okay. I think it, you know, and but I'm used to, you know, that's a thing that, that comes, especially with Chandler, but kind of with that noir uh, genre is you've always got the, the second case that doesn't seem related yeah. until the end. And then it's like, oh, it's related. Um, yeah. so it feels like par for the course. Um, okay. but I do think, you know, the, the, the stuff that comes off of it and you know, it's also, it's, it's all men. So there's going to be like non sequiturs and that kind of stuff. That's true. That's but true. I do think no, the I stuff agree. that comes with it, having his, you know, his little like weird friendship with Harry and, um, and the, you know, the, the scene towards the end. Um, yeah, I think it all adds to the kind of like, what is going on? You know, I, you, yeah you watch Marlo kind of spin more and more out of control in this movie. In the beginning, he knows everything that's going on. He's always got a smart mm-hmm. comeback because he, you know, he, he's following people. He finds Wade very easily. He tracks Mark Rydell's character back to see that he's tied up with Mrs. Wade. Like he's the one who's always yeah. a step ahead of everyone. And then towards the end, you start to see him falling behind and it starts to get to him a little bit more. And I do yeah. like that the the Mark Rydell part is it feels truly out of control to him. Like he 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 can with the Wades, he's he's he thinks he's on solid footing, but like and then he gets home and there's a bunch of gangsters in his house. Yeah, and and yeah, it's the it's the it's the bottle stuff. It's the take your clothes off, and he's like, I'm very confused by this. Yeah. Um. No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Alternate universe cast. So the one big one that's like confirmed. Um actor dan blocker from bonanza appeared in 415 episodes in bonanza was a personal friend of altman and was to play roger wade because altman got altman got started on bonanza right he was a i think he did yeah he he was a tv director he did tv stuff yeah um and so dan blocker was to play roger wade before passing away in may of 1972 Hmm. so he was to play sorry hayden's character and this like the hemingway type person um i said they talked about john houston as well for that character of roger wade um so early on as i said bogdanovich pierre bogdanovich was was approached to direct this movie but he allegedly was not interested in doing it with elliot gould and he wanted someone like robert mitchum to play the part Mm -hmm. and i think this is when it was supposed to be set in the 1950s and not the 1970s so Robert Mitchum was talked about and Lee Marvin was talked about for Philip Marlowe. Obviously loved having Marvin as Wade. I don't know, you know, how that would have worked Marvin out. Lee Marvin would be good at, yeah, Lee Marvin be good as Roger Wade. Yeah. That'd be a, that'd be a fun Roger Wade. But um, I don't know about, yeah, I think, I think that either of those guys would have been good Wades, but I don't know about Marlowe. 
it, it, it just becomes a whole different movie. Like, yeah. I don't think, I don't think you can make long goodbye this way without Elliot Gould. Yeah. Like there's a, there's simple. a difference. Like we said, Marlo somebody who's always wisecracking, but yeah, this, this is a Marlo who uh, it's, it's almost like he doesn't care, but it cares more. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is a little, you know, he's, 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 uh, this is, I don't, I don't exactly like, like Bogart was, was angry. Like Bogart was an angry yeah. Marlowe and, and Powell was felt like a kind of perform Like he wanted everybody to think he was cool. Kind of, you yeah. know, he, he, he was really pushing those quips and he was like, don't you think I'm funny? I'm and, 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 uh, Gould just kind of exists. He's like the dude, you know, he's like, if the big Lebowski yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was, I was thinking Philip about Marlo. that. I was, th- yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah. He, he abides. Um, but he also cares. <laughs> like he does truly care, but not in that like angry, like Bogart kind of rage way. He's not jaded. Um, yeah. which is why the end is kind of more shocking to us when we do. Yeah. Get it. Cause he, at the, essentially he kind of becomes jaded because mm-hmm. of that. Um, so yeah, no, yeah, I just, I think, yeah, you put anyone in this, it, like if you put Mitchum, you can't put it in the 1970s. And <laughs> Mitchum at this point is getting older because like he did like Feral My Lovely, which was the like a kind of adaptation of uh, what, what, what was what ended up being Pals Murder My Sweet, but he did it in the 70s. It's okay. Um, he did the Big Sleep as well, which I haven't seen. Um, but yeah, I just think he I think he had aged out. Marvin, I, like I said, I do I would love to see Marv Lee Marvin as kind of the the big like the grizzled beard always mm. drinking like writer that that's which i think story hangs great so i don't want to like not cast him yeah um but yeah uh film facts so roger wade's house in the movie in, in malibu was actually robert altman's home at the time oh wow that was a gorgeous yeah. house yeah so for movies that didn't make a lot of money he had some he had a nice house i gotta mm-hmm. say that um an early oh an early appearance by did you see who who was in this movie oh absolutely you better believe okay. that i saw who was in this movie <laughs> how could i miss him He's yeah who, two who times the times? size of everyone else in the room arnold schwarzenegger it's one of the one of the uh one of the gangsters that starts stripping down and he one does of those you get to yeah you get to see arnold stripping in 73 let's see what's i think i also have an early i also have an early nomination for um for the gene hackman mvp award oh go ahead it's not arnold schwarzenegger okay i was like it's gonna be schwarzenegger it's arnold schwarzenegger's mustache in this movie he does have a mustache in this movie it's fantastic why is it why has he kept that up (laughs) why did he ever do that again when i saw that i was like that mustache is amazing and then i was like have i ever seen arnold schwarzenegger with a mustache and i don't think i have but um it looks great look it up Look up Arnold Schwarzenegger in Long Goodbye and just look at the mustache. Oh, uh, here, here's the last one. The car Marlowe drives, a 1948 Lincoln Continental, was actually Elliot Gould's car at the time. Wow. That's a wild car. Uh, the car, last I heard, is now at a car museum in Reno, Nevada. Of course it but is. It's, but it's been painted yellow. I've always, whenever, you know, especially when you drive cross country and, and go. You see a lot of random around, car museums. Around Route 66. Everybody's got a car museum. I'm always like, there can't be that many famous cars. Like, yeah. they always have the Batmobile. I'm like, how many Batmobiles yeah. are there that every one of these museums I've driven by has, has but a, which, a Batmobile? But which Batmobile? Which Batmobile? <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent question. Because I can go, I can go to like a place in Gatlinburg and see the 1960s Batmobile car uh, at the car museum there. Uh, and then I, but yeah, also 
I think I, I've seen the 19, uh, I've seen the bat, like 89 Batman car a couple times. Yeah. I don't know how, I mean, how is these random places and like, and they must've just made so many for the Adam West TV show is my thought. If they, if they are a lot of those, if they are authentic, they probably just made like one every couple of months for that show. Like, ah, we got to wreck this one. Let's make another one. Um, I've got, I've got one more fact. Okay, go ahead. Um, Jim Burton, as as well as being a baseball player slash actor slash uh, writer, mm-hmm. the majority of his fortune was made as one of the creators of Big League Chew. Was he really? Yep. <laughs> he made more money for creating Big League Chew than he did in the entirety of his Major League Baseball career. That's insane. I'm looking at For that. anyone who, a... who did not grow up in the 90s, Big League Chew was a bubble gum that came in a packet and was meant to be to look like you uh, chewing tobacco. Wow. He yeah. He uh, he also won a, a World Series. He he played for the Yankees uh in 1962. So he's a World Series bubble champ. Bubble gum tycoon. World Series champ, author, actor, bubble gum tycoon. Yeah. Uh not bad not a bad life. Not a bad life. I mean, his win loss record in that is is okay, sixty two and sixty three. So <laughs> yeah, that's like, why you right. don't come. That's why you don't come back from retirement. <laughs> you really mess with your, your with your. You would have had a winning record, yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. Okay. Oh, story questions. Did you have any story questions? Because I. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, it's a, you know it's a it's a there's detective, a lot of questions. It's a detective yeah. noir, so yeah, there's going to be questions. Um, oh, here's a, here's a question. Here's a question. Do you think Eileen Wade? Uh, was trying to sleep with uh, Marlo when he shows up for dinner that night. She's got the little like finger food uh, out on the yeah. couch. It's very seventies. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't do fondue. Um, <laughs> I think so. I think she. I think she was kind of sweet on him. Do you have a question at all? Uh, so many, but like not, nothing that important. Um, I, I feel like that's also <laughs> that's also like the Altman thing is like you you shouldn't start picking at it. Um, yeah. Yeah, what happens if he catches her in the car when he's when he's when he's trying to chase her down? Oh, when he well, what part is yeah? Before he gets hit. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Good question. Um, I mean, the big question: What happened to the cat? Where's the cat? I at? like to think he just went <laughs> next door um, to the hippies' house, and they're they're giving him. Uh, oh yeah, what are those? Hi- well, yeah, what do those hippies do for a living to make money? Like how they, they, they dip candles. That? Oh yeah. <laughs> was, was he telling the truth? I don't know if he does, if he's telling the truth. I love that. I, I you know I just had a conversation with my mom over Christmas. I was explaining what Patreon is to her, and she <laughs> said uh, she said I would, everyone needs to go out and get a job, and um, and it was funny because that's literally back in, like go back in 1973, and they've got that line where where Harry is like, "What are those? What do those girls do?" And uh, he's like, "Oh, they've got a store." uh down on melrose and they they dip candles and he's like you know back there used to be a time when people had real jobs (laughs) (laughs) now they own an etsy store and dip candles that way probably they just be shipping off candles Mm -hmm. oh man and that's a good segue to announce our patreon no uh Uh, you don't understand making a podcast is hard work (laughs) and there's not a lot of money in it i was like a lot of these things i can i'll agree with you on some uh, twitch i don't know like I, I still don't really understand Twitch. I'm a little, I think I'm a little too old to understand uh, <laughs> paying to watch somebody play video games. 
but Patreon I get. <laughs> Hell, you gotta help everybody out, man. You know, all right, I got one more. Does Marlo find Terry if those if the Mexican cops don't roll over so easily? <laughs> they do roll over very easy at the end. He's just like, I know you guys are lying. Tell me where he is. Okay, you're right. He didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> he paid us the exact same amount you did. And you so did. We're gonna, and we were just I, lying I to, for him. I had to Google if a $5,000 bill was a real thing. I, um, I did not know that was that that was a, a real thing in the past. Yeah, yeah money. Yeah, we're thinking about money. Uh, yeah, you, there was like, because you have the $1,000 bill was like, I think I knew about that. Uh, was there a $10,000 bill? Uh, there was a, a $10,000 bill. And there was a $100,000 bill that was never circulated publicly interesting yeah james madison's on the five thousand dollar bill grover cleveland is on the was on the thousand dollar bill and i i think that still exists somewhere <laughs> the thousand dollar one and maybe even the five thousand dollar one yeah now it's still james madison anyway who oh who do you think who do you think's on the hundred that hundred thousand dollar bill I mean, you're never going to guess. It's Woodrow Wilson. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> that's got like, to be wild if you're like, you know, you're in you whatever the afterlife is. And there's all these presidents like comparing and like Woodrow Wilson's like, I'm on the $100,000 bill. And then like people just stop <laughs> using them. They stop making them completely. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe maybe I should like everybody's dunking on Lincoln for being on the penny. But look what we're still <laughs> using these days. Uh, guy was in the ten thousand dollar bill. Uh, Salmon P. Chase. So, don't know a chief justice. Don't know why he was in the ten thousand dollar <laughs> bill. No clue. Okay. Anyway. Uh. Okay. Awards. The Beatrice Strait Award for an actor and actress with limited scenes that kills it. Uh, I I think Sterling Hayden is is is, is he limited enough or is he? Let's see. You got. Uh. Yeah. I would. I would give him limited. I'm trying to think. You have. Uh, I would this, go. I'll go supporting. I'll go supporting. I think for yeah. Him. It's he's on the he's on the fence because he's. You have the like the scene at the rehab when he first finds him. You have a bunch of scenes at his house, of like Marlo kind of interviewing him. The party scene when he commits yeah. suicide. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'll go so, supporting. Um, actually, for for limited scenes, I might go with Henry Gibson because I was I thinking think the same he's thing. Really solid in his yeah in his couple of scenes that he does have. Of where you're like, not is he is he threatening? Is he just yeah, yeah, a yeah. guy kind of trying to do his job? Like, it, and that's 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 something great I love about the kind of detective noirs is you know you come into these things and you never know who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side and and if you know there's something bigger are they like kidnapping him or did he really yeah. just not pay and they just really need him to pay his bill here? <laughs> <laughs> you write the check, Roger. Write the check. Um, yeah, I like Henry Gibson uh i think he's a guy because yeah he can play menacing but also but you just don't like you don't know where he stands on really anything and like because you wonder like is he a part of the overall like kind of plot of the story or like is he just a dude who just like wants to get the bill paid roger we have business to discuss <laughs> balls <laughs> now you roger this asshole huh? roger what ah would you prefer to discuss this in private or discuss what shall we discuss our business here in front of all your friends 
By all means. Why, why don't you go in the study and talk, and talk about it? I ain't got no study. I ain't got no study anymore. I used to have a study over there, right? I did. I, Roger, I did. you I owe me $4,400. Oh, you will pay me what you owe me. No, actually, I don't wish to pay you what I owe you. Yes, Roger, I'm what? not leaving without the money. All right, don't leave. I don't give a shit. Get your ass out of here and let's have a party, huh? Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger. Whoa. Hey, go. Bye, yep. Oh. Okay, any pot sex factor award. Supporting actor and actress says that is the most memorable. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go. Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden yeah. with that one. Yeah, I mean... It, I, cause I, I really didn't, the first time I watched this film, I didn't really know that much about Sterling Hayden. And then this time I was like, oh snap, that's Sterling Hayden. I'm very, like, it's just so like, I mean, cause Hayden, again, he, he, he would be the guy to like portray a Hemingway character just mm-hmm. because like Hayden was an actual sailor, like at one point in his life. That's a weird, Sterling Hayden's a weird guy. I gotta be honest. <laughs> Sterling Hayden, yeah, his scene. I, 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 and I love this scene where like Marlo's kind of interviewing him uh, at the Malibu home, and then also kind of him being this kind of. I mean, at like the party, for example, of 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 Roger and, and Sterling Hayden being kind of this, um, like mag, like social magnet in a way, um, of how everyone kind of flocks to him. It feels like in that in that moment, um, but yeah, he's just he. he Hayden is Hayden feels like an animal you're trying to contain in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 really it's really fantastic. Hi, exquisite styrofoam pitcher. Huh? Oh Jesus, man, my mouth's burning up. You got me all drugged up, Doc. You needed help, Roger. Well, you know, I I uh, I've been taking a little look around the reservation here, and uh, I've been looking at. Some of the other patients and then some of your colleagues and uh, this place stinks, Doc. It's this place that's sick, not the people in it. You'd like to go home, wouldn't you? Oh, I'd like to go home. Yeah, I'd like to go home, and I'm going home. Because I'll tell you one more goddamn thing. I'm a man cannot stand confinement. So if you don't start pressing buttons and get me out of here, I'll tell you I'll tear you limb from limb and waltz right out through the goddamn wall. Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, crew member, etc. Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, I feel like you could go with Altman, you could go with Ellie Gould, or you could go even with with Zygmunt at this for this one. But yeah, um, yeah, I think Ellie Gould, especially being that we've kind of explored other versions of Marlowe in in this podcast. Um, yeah, I think you know it's it's altman's vision that that kind of set out to make this movie different but i yeah. think it's ultimately if if you don't have gould here that wouldn't have worked yeah like as i said earlier i don't really know who you could put in this role and it would be as good mm-hmm. like the one that comes to mind, I'm gonna throw it out there just because I love him, but I don't know if he would do it. I, I could see like a Roy Scheider for some reason as well. Like I could see Roy Scheider being like a drunk character walking around LA trying to get cat food for his cat. Yeah. But I think Gould, I think Scheider might be too hard edged for that because I think Gould plays this like it, 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 he just he he feels like out of time is the mm-hmm. whole thing, and I think Scheider might not have that, but Gould just feels. Like you said, in that in that black suit, like 
he's he's going against everything that's happening in the LA like landscape at that point. Right. Um and I think Gould I think you can't you can't replace that. Um and I think too I mean we we as we talk about on the show sometimes like how like what's the importance of it in terms of like the career at the time and because of that two year gap for Gould this was kind of seen as like a comeback movie for him. Mm-hmm. And I think he even though it was a, it wasn't a financial success, I think he proves of how talented he he was as an actor in this like span of time. So I I agree with you. I would go Elliot Gould for the Gene Hackman MVP award. We'll give it to Altman one day. Altman <laughs> will get it at some there's, point. There's some plenty point. of movies where this there's could go. Plenty here's, of movies. Here's the thing with Altman is there's so many movies that he's done with these huge ensemble casts that you kind of have to. He's yeah. the person who shines, but this being one of the rare movies that is like focused on one specific person, Gould Gould kind of steals it. Yeah. Mr. Marlowe, did you get the brownie mix? Uh huh. Yeah, I got you. What two kind did you get, Mr. Marlowe? Regular and one uh, the brownie uh, mixed with a double fudge of Bertie Fantastic. Night, girls. How much do we owe you? Oh, that's okay. Just put it on the bill. Thanks, Mr. Marlowe. I'll save you a brownie. Thanks a lot, but they hurt my teeth. But if you want to make me a couple of Yankee doodles. All right, final questions. If this film was remade today, who do you cast? Uh, all right. So I've got I've got a couple. Got a couple ideas I've been kicking around for this one. Um, okay. My mind immediately went to Ryan Gosling, but I feel like we've gotten a lot of Ryan Gosling <laughs> noir yeah. stuff. Um. Think I think Chris Pine could really could really run with this run with we're, this role. We're gonna keep bringing up the Chris Pine stuff. Okay, two episodes yeah. in a row. I mean, my mind keeps going back to Bill Hader because I set him for Murder My Sweet. Yeah. Um, I feel like I just for some reason I think I just want to put Bill Hader in a Marlowe movie. I don't know why. Like I think he would love that. Knowing knowing yeah. the film nerd that Bill Hader is, I think he'd be down for that for sure. So are you going Chris Pine is what it is? I mean, I don't, no offense, no offense to Chris Pine, but now I'm thinking I need to go with somebody a little bit younger. Um, since, <laughs> no offense, Chris Pine. You know, I just, I, here's the thing. Yeah, I'm going with Chris Pine because I want to give him something to do other than be in another Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Steve Trevor needs to be dead. Let's leave him. <laughs> let's just leave him in the past. He's, we love Chris Pine. Let's give him, let's give him something else to do yeah i could even see i could even see like gyllenhaal in this role but i'm trying to think of somebody like a little bit younger i would love to see lakeith stanfield in something like this where that would be where, interesting actually yeah, where yeah, kind yeah. Of, he's someone who's just kind of doing his own thing and the, the the you know this is all kind of unfolding around him kind of, i mean he he's playing that character a little bit in i mean he plays kind of second fiddle to daniel craig but in knives out he's he's kind of like yeah I'm, you know i'm just kind of a run-of-the-mill cop and and this this mystery is like way out of hand for me i um, really like lakeith stanfield in that actually mm-hmm. uh i'm gonna throw one more out he might he, he might be a little too old as you said you said uh sasha baron cohen <laughs> yeah yeah i can see that i mean it, it, and here's the thing if we're if we're talking I, I was thinking this the whole time i was watching this movie because i hadn't revisited it since i had seen inherent vice but like that like joaquin phoenix is basically doing la gold marlowe like a, yeah, just a little yeah, yeah. bit more stoned um yeah inherent vice definitely owes a lot to to this movie for sure mm-hmm. so uh uh i i like the like keith stanfield pick mm-hmm. i like keith stanfield pick 
Um, let's go with that. Uh, do we have a? And we don't have to do that ones, but do we have like a Roger Wade? <laughs> I mean, we'd have to age him up a little bit, but yeah, I, I will say this for forever until on my deathbed. Corey Stoll in Midnight in Paris <laughs> as Ernest Hemingway is is pure perfection. <laughs> Okay, I'm so fine in with my, that. In my, in my dream of dreams, Corey stole my. He's like, I never thought I would get, I never thought I would get typecast as Ernest Hemingway, but he, and he might not want to do it. But big fan, I'm a big fan of Corey Stoll. Haven't seen him in much recently. Uh, would like to, would like to go give him, you know, something fun to do. I feel um, like he's just popped. He's popped around more in TV of late. It feels like mm-hmm. compared to movies. I like Corey Stoll as that. Any other characters we had a cast? No, I mean, I feel like no one else is really like super distinctive, and I mean, Mrs. Yeah. Mrs. Wade, we could give, but the 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 character in itself isn't that distinctive where it would it would lend itself to um, yeah to be like I I would argue this I would argue that the thing that that we this is backtracking, but I think it does not work. I'm not so sure how I feel about her in mm-hmm. that role. And it might just be that role. Yeah. Yeah, there's it's, not much it's not there. Like, it, it doesn't like. it doesn't lean into like femme fatale enough to be a femme fatale. Yeah, um, she's just kind of played as mysterious. Like you don't know what her yeah. motivations are, and and she plays it. Um, no, yeah, no, I agree. But yeah, I think that I, I just do. I do wonder if that if if there's a better version of that character somewhere. All right, so if you're keeping if you're keeping to the the we're, we're, this is going deeper into this game. The okay. Rules, the rules for Terry are: it has to be a former professional athlete. Who Who are you casting? Ooh, ooh. I, I does it need to be an athlete that acts, or they don't have to have acted before? Okay. Because my mind just automatically goes to wrestlers, Thomas. I just gotta be honest. I did. I did think Cena. Cena was one of the first. I ones thought that... I'm, I was. I was thinking Cena too. Um, but I wonder. Like does Cena get shot at the end by like Keith Stanfield is the thing, and I don't, I don't know. Here's my question. Yeah, just just from like hairstyle and face, but like if you cast Tom Brady in this, is everyone going to assume from the beginning that he <laughs> killed his wife? Because they just want to hate him. Is that it? <laughs> they just want to hate Tom Brady. I mean, he has he has kind of a similar look. I can see um, Tom Brady pulling on his driving gloves. <laughs> I mean, another wrestler, I would say, you don't know him, I feel, Thomas, is his name's Chris Jericho. I would love I to see yeah, Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho. Okay. I, I can see Chris Jericho in this role. All right. What if, what if we go, <laughs> if, if we give you Bill Hader uh-huh. and we go with his old on screen pal, LeBron James? <laughs> Get a train wreck reunion. I mean, I I think there'd be some people who would want him to be like the killer at the end too, like because people people hate yeah, LeBron true. James. It's like, yeah, it's like they they'd say Michael Jordan wouldn't be caught. That's what they would say <laughs> at the at the at the end. LeBron James got caught. No, I I like. I mean, I I don't know if LeBron. You gotta um, be able to pull off convincingly at the beginning, being like, yeah, know, yeah, that's true. I would love to see what LeBron because LeBron do, LeBron has great comedic timing. I feel. Um, I would be interested to see what he does in like a dramatic, dramatic role. 
Well, that's the, the interesting thing with this role is is when Terry's introduced to us, he seems pretty suspicious. Yeah. Um, and then it is when he shows up at, at Marlo, it is Marlo's reaction to him that we go, oh, this guy's cool. Like they're buddies. Yeah, yeah. He likes him. And then throughout the movie, just having Marlo like stick up for this guy. Um, yeah. So it's really the chemistry you have to nail more than anything, I feel like. So maybe it is LeBron James and Bill Hader. I don't know. Maybe that is maybe yeah. maybe LeBron James shows up at his high rise kind of apartment and says, guess how many sevens are on my dollar bill type thing. Like, yeah. Maybe maybe you just cast Lakeith and then you'd be like, hey, man, are you tight with any athletes? <laughs> <laughs> Another guy. I'm going to say this too. You said Lakeith. I could I'd be interested in Donald Glover in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As Marlowe. I would totally be into that, too does this film fit with any other genres ah uh, i mean i don't know it's i mean it's a detective film obviously but um it yeah. fits pretty squarely into neo-noir like it's it's yeah it's i feel like it's it's a great one to start this month off because it is a like a textbook uh I, version yeah of i agree neo-noir. i agree completely yeah i think it's i mean neo-noir like popped up because because and we didn't say this earlier but like noir is kind of seen as like it ends around 58 to 60 and then mm-hmm. pretty much anything in the 60s onward is neo-noir. But this is coming out like 13 years after that. But this one feels like just a pure, hey, let's show you how we take a 50s character, literally just like time travel him, transport him to the 1970s. What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. This is that movie. Um, And kind of off that, how does this film fit in the neo-noir genre? Uh yeah i mean it's it's dead middle like i said this is like a textbook case if you if someone asks you like what's a neo-noir and and, and i mean that's kind of what we've put together for you this month is you know neo-noir is 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 a wide collection of things a lot wider and kind of harder to pin down necessarily than noir um but this is this is a great one to start with um and and we'll get into some of the more sub sub genres as we go but but yeah this this one is is it takes the story and the style that we know and just changes, uh, you know, it introduces more modern forms of, of character development. It mm-hmm. introduces more modern forms of filmmaking and style and vision and, and all of that. And so it, it's it's taking the tropes that we're familiar with and, and playing with it. I agree completely. So, yeah, that's all we have for in this episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're on. And if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And next week, we'll be talking about Body Heat, starring William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, Mickey Rourke, and Ted Danson. Yep. And written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, another Empire Strikes Back writer. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, I know you're excited for that, that episode. That's, that's kind of, we that's we kind didn't. There's kind of, well, it's funny to me because we did, we've done a um we, we didn't plan this i don't think we've done a Marlowe as the first episode of no noir vember and this month mm. and then we're doing a florida noir as the follow-up episode with uh key largo and body heat mm-hmm. we we walked right into that don't know how that <laughs> happened um so yeah we're gonna talk about body heat and then we got uh we ha- we're do- talking about Brick later on in the month. I'm bringing on Ben Gertz is the plan right now. And then we're talking about a director by the name of John Dahl. Look him up. He's a guy who's been able to do a couple 90s and 2000s neo-noir films that I feel capture the modern context of a neo-noir. So that'll be the end of the month. 
So yeah, it's going to be a fun uh, fun month of neo-noir films. I'm excited, Thomas. Yeah, me too. And until next time, everyone, bye.